You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible-teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our studies of the lives of faithful Old Testament believers. We're calling By Faith. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. You know, so often it feels like, and maybe you've had this uh, come up in your world, where somebody says to me, hey, I read about these people in the Bible and I just can't relate to them. I don't feel like my faith is strong enough. I don't have enough to be a Paul or I don't understand a John. If you've been with us in this series, maybe you've had that thought already as we study Hebrews 11, what's known as the Hall of Faith, kind of playing off of the idea of a Hall of Fame. These were men and women just like you and me, but they had an opportunity to take this bold step of faith and to trust God in what he was calling them to do. Think about Abraham. We've looked at him the last couple of weeks. Think about Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who were told that they were going to have a child, but they were past childbearing years. And I understand that I think this just seems impossible. How in the world could it ever be? Or last week when we talked about when they had that son and all of a sudden Abraham is called to go sacrifice his son Isaac. And I think, I, I just couldn't do it. I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know that I could. Well, if you've ever been in a position where you thought, I just can't relate to the people in Scripture, I've got good news for you today. Today is your day. You're going to understand this story. If you've ever made the joke that says, yes, dysfunctional families, our family puts the fun in dysfunction. If that's ever been you, then you may enjoy today a little bit and say, hey, there's somebody in Scripture that gets me, somebody that understands my family at a deeper level. And even as I say that, I recognize this, is within the spectrum of dysfunctional families, there are dysfunctions that we can laugh at that we can say are really kind of maybe oddities. There's just things about our family that seem a little bit strange, but run the spectrum to some devastatingly painful dynamics within your family. Be they internal forces uh, where you talk about leadership structure or abuse or those kind of things, or maybe they're outside forces that are coming in uh, to your world. Whatever the, the spectrum is, we recognize that there are some dysfunctions that we can laugh at, and then there are some that will make us weep with families. We're going to come to a story today in Hebrews chapter 11 that will take us back into Genesis that is a devastating story about dysfunction in family, but how God steps in and intervenes in a way that he redeems and changes a family dynamic. And so we've got a great story today. Again, as we use the word story, it's a narrative. I'd encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 11. These are real people. These are real stories that had a bold faith in God to do what God called them to do. As we step into this, there's going to be several names. And so I'm going to show you this slide several times today in our message because we've got enough names going on in this story that I want to give you a bit of a visual map for where we're headed. We begin with Abraham and Sarah. They were unable to conceive a child for a long period of time, so they decided that Sarah would give her maidservant Hagar to Abraham to have a son, and they did have a son named Ishmael. And then Abraham and Sarah got the promised son, Isaac. And so we're going to talk about Abraham and Sarah. We're going to talk about Isaac, who married Rebekah. And then they had a couple of children, Esau and Jacob. 
Jacob being the younger of those. And then we're going to talk about Jacob and Rachel and their children, but specifically Joseph. And as we come into this account, there was a human tradition that the oldest child received the blessings of the family. And what we see from the very beginning in this is God is changing what he wants to do. He might work with human traditions, but he certainly doesn't have to. And in this account, whereas the normal culture said you bless the oldest child, is we're going to look at the fact that Isaac was not the oldest, Jacob was not the oldest, and Joseph was not the oldest. Within this line, that's where we're headed. So as we look at these names, I invite you to look down with me at Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, as we come into this, what we have as we go back to this slide is we recognize Abraham is the father. Then you end up with Isaac, the son. Then you end up with Jacob, the grandson, and Joseph, the great-grandson. And the promise made to Gen- out of Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 15 was this, is that I'm going to carry this on and all of the generations of the earth will be blessed. And so we've got a carrying forward of this. And so it makes sense that if we process this, that you've got to go from father to son to grandson to great-grandson and so forth. And so that's exactly how this is going to play itself out. And so as we think through this, God's at work bringing about his plans. Now, The plan is God's perfect plan, but leave it to us to take some dysfunctions and work that in in a way that could possibly disrupt everything, unless you have a God who's in charge and is omnipotent and is in control. So I want to invite you to turn with me back to Genesis chapter 27, which is where we're going to pick up this story. In this story, we've got a family dynamic with twins. We've got Esau and Jacob, and we've got a father, and Esau tends to lean towards his father. His father was an outdoorsman. He's a hunter. He's a man of the field. Then you have Jacob, and Jacob seemed to be the one that was more connected to his mother. So we've got Esau, who would seemingly, by human tradition, have the blessing the, the firstborn. But this is where some of our dysfunction begins to set in. We've got parents playing favorites. We've got parents that are deceiving each other. We've got children who are deceiving each other. We have people who are manipulating and scheming and conniving. And you find out that everybody's involved in it. And so here's our story. We've got that the father, Isaac, sends out Esau to go hunt. So Esau is going to go hunt and he's going to come back. But his wife recognizes, hey, honey, to Jacob, we could mess this all up and I want you to have the blessing. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna pull a fast one on dad. We're gonna deceive him and we're gonna have you get the blessing. You see, at this point, Isaac has lost his vision. And so he can't see very well. And so he's relying on his other senses. And that's where we're going to pick up this story in Genesis chapter 27, verse 18. So he, Jacob, went to his father Isaac and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? Which son is this that's coming in to talk to me? Jacob said to your father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Here's your first lie. Here's your first deception. It is blatant. You cannot find your way out of this. This is a lie, and it is intended to deceive his father. I'm Esau, your firstborn. 
I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Right? So let's stop and let's keep track of what's going on. So he sends out his son to go hunt, catch some food, come back and make a meal. Jacob shows up and he says, who is this? And he says, I'm Esau, lie number one. His dad already recognized, wait, something's off. The timetable doesn't exactly work here. There's no way that you've gone out, hunted, come back, cleaned up, cooked a meal and brought us food. The timetable doesn't work. It's just not right. And so he asks him a question. First, the timetable's off. And then he says, how is it that you found it so quickly? What is the timetable? And here comes Jacob's second lie that moves beyond just a lie and moves actually into blasphemy because he calls on the name of God to say, I was blessed by God in what I have done here today. God smiled on me. I had his favor when I went hunting, which is why I was able to come back so quickly. So now we've lied and we've brought God into the lie. And so now we have this scene going on. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. We're told in the previous section that Esau had really hairy arms. And so when, he come, when Jacob comes in and says, father, and he goes, who is this? Lie, bring God into the equation. Timetable doesn't work. And now the dad says, wait a minute. It feels like something's off. I hear Jacob, but I, he tells me he's Esau. He told me that he hunted quickly, and then he told me that God had favor on him. So I've got to bring more senses into the equation. He can't see, so he's used his ears already, and now he's using the sense of touch. Come here, let me bring, you, bring you, me your arm. And all of a sudden, as he looks up, he says, okay, I may feel you, son, to know whether or not you're really my son Esau or not. Because Jacob's mother had said, let's put some, some hair on your arm, some animal skin on your arm, so that when dad feels your arm, you'll even feel like Esau. See how manipulative it's getting? And we've got parents going against each other, and all this is going on in the scene, and Jacob is going back and forth with it. Verse 22, so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who fell to him and said, the voice is Jacob's, but the hands, they're the hands of Esau. It's working. He's winning. Verse 23. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau. And he, excuse me. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. Are you really my son Esau? He's still doubting. He's still doubting. I am. Verse 25. Bring it near to me. Bring the food near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. There's another sense. I can't see you, so I've got to rely on everything else. I relied on my ears. You didn't sound like Esau, but you told me you were Esau. You didn't feel like Esau, so I touched your arm, and you feel like Esau. Time doesn't work. Timetable's off. But you know what? Come here. Come give your old man a kiss. 
See the test? He's trying to smell him. And he's wearing his brother's clothes. We learned that from earlier in the story. So guess what? I mean, why would your son lie to you? Why would you not be able to trust the words of your son? He said he was Esau. He smells like Esau. He cooks like Esau. He was successful in the field like Esau. It must be Esau, right? And so we have this moment going on where he's going to get the blessing. Now, part of what's going on in this story is earlier in in chapter 26, we know that Isaac, the line, the promise from Abraham that's going to carry on from generation to generation, we know it's going through Isaac. Genesis 26, the Lord speaking, I will multiply your to Isaac, your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give you offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. See, that's the Abrahamic covenant. There's going to be land and there's going to be seed and there's going to be blessing and I'm going to continue to perpetuate that in generations through you. And so now the blessing, it comes time for him to offer the blessing to his son. He thinks Esau because Jacob's deceived him. What's the blessing consist of? Before I read it, let's understand. Just so that we read this, it's, this will make sense. The first blessing is going to be prosperity. Is it based on the smell of Isaac coming in from the field? There'll be two blessings. One is that will be a symbol of his prosperity. He will be successful in what he does. And number two, that the fields will be successful. He will be successful in agriculture, okay? That's the first part of the blessing. The second is this, dominion. Jacob is now going to serve as Lord over both his brothers and the nations. And so he's going to have a tremendous leadership and responsibility, but he is going to be the Lord over all of them. And then third, the protection and blessing, a reiteration of exactly what God told Abraham is that he will curse those who curse you. That's the protection. People are not going to want to hurl down curses on you because I will invoke that on them. And then blessing, those who bless you, I will bless. See the divine protection and blessing? People who are good to you will receive good. People who are bad to you, they're going to receive bad. So you're going to have prosperity, you're going to have dominion, and you're going to have protection and blessing, all right? So let's look down at what the blessing looks like when he says it, picking up in verse 27. So he came near and kissed him. Isaac smelled and smelled his garments, convincing him that it was in fact Esau when it was Jacob. And blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. There's all the prosperity. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's son's bow uh, bow down to you. There is the dominion. Third part. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. All right. All of our rule followers out there, of which I'm one, have a really hard time with this passage. Jacob set out to deceive his father with the help of his mother because he didn't care about his brother, so he lies to his dad to get what he wants. And I read this, and I think, well, of course, who doesn't want this blessing? Prosperity, dominion, protection, blessing. Who doesn't want this blessing? And yet I met with the idea that why does Jacob win? Why does Jacob get to win? 
I struggle with it. Now, the line, the promise is going to go through Jacob anyway, but why doesn't God step in? I mean, we talk about the law, the law of sowing and reaping. I mean, we see it in Galatians. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Does that look like it here? I don't know what to do with it. And I think sometimes, doesn't it depend on our perspective? Like, if it's to me, it's God's grace. If it's somebody else, it's like, how dare you not bring justice into that guy's life? Here's how you know. You're driving down 287. You're a little over the speed limit because you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry. Some car blows past you, and you think, I hope some police officer gives that guy a ticket. He deserves it. That's how you know. It's grace when it's in your life. It's injustice when it goes uncaught in somebody else's life. And so as I look at it, I want to call it injustice, but maybe it was just the Lord extending grace. Or maybe it's this. God's going to deal with Jacob, and maybe we just don't recognize it and we don't see it for what it is. Because over the next 20 chapters, it is true, Jacob did get this blessing. And God had said Jacob was going to get this blessing, and so this blessing was going to be Jacob's no matter what. Now, let's just take a second and be grateful that somebody's conniving, manipulative scheming doesn't thwart the plan of God. Because if you've ever been the victim of somebody manipulating, scheming, devising, and conniving, you can say, man, I hope God, that doesn't upset God and all of a sudden God's out of control. No, God will do what he's going to do. But we've got 20 more chapters in the book of Gen Genesis where, as one theologian captures it better than I can because I can't preach the next 20 chapters this morning. I mean, I could, but y'all would be glad I didn't. <laughs> Says this, they gained nothing and they lost a great deal, Jacob and his mother, by their wicked interference. They gained nothing, for God had promised that the birthright would be Jacob's, and they lost a great deal. The mother lost her son. Jacob had to flee for his life, and for all we know, Rebekah never saw him again. We have no accounting of him ever seeing his mother again after she helped him do this scheme. And Jacob lost all the comforts of home and all the possessions that his father had accumulated. He fled with nothing but his staff. He became an outcast to begin the world for himself. From the first false step onwards to his death, he was pursued by misfortune until his own verdict on his life was, quote, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. See, you and I can look up and say, he got away with it. I mean, he got the blessing. I mean, he schemed. He brought his mom into it. She's like, hey, do this, do this. This will really fool your dad. And she's involved in all of it. And we can say, well, he got the blessing. He didn't even have to pay a price. Really? It may not be the price we thought he should pay, but he paid a tremendous price falling through this account. The mother that he was so close to, he left. We don't know that he ever even saw her again. The price was incredibly high. And God's plan moves forward. And so we go through this. So Esau, who was sent to hunt, he comes back. He's been successful. He comes in. And he comes to his dad and says, I need the blessing. And dad has a moment. Matter of fact, you can imagine the emotion of this. His dad's shaking and trembling in his bed. Esau's mad. He's livid. Not even the first time Jacob had tricked him. He got his birthright from him. So here's little brother. Little brother always wins. Little brother always gets everything. The whole world's against me, and he is mad. 
And so he pleads with his dad, is there any blessing left for me? Listen to this. It's called the anti-blessing, and you'll see why. Look with me, if you would, down at verse 38. Esau said to his father, have you but one blessing, father? You know, what he's saying is, is there anything left? Can you offer me anything, dad? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. See why it's the anti-blessing? Your brother is going to live in the fatness and all the produce of the land. You're going to live away from it. He's going to live under the dew of heaven. You're going to live away from it. People are going to bow down to him. You're going to have to bear a sword. See why it's the anti-blessing? If you're Esau, I think we can understand where all of the anger comes from. And if we're really honest, if we haven't understood favoritism within a family, we're seeing it here played out. And if you grew up with it in your home, you know how devastating it can be. And it's ripping this family apart and all that they're facing. Now, I will say this. We come to a point in Genesis 33 where Jacob is coming back and trying to make some level of amends with Esau. So recognize God is still taking care of Esau. I, when Jacob offers him something, Esau says, I have enough, my brother, keep what you have for yourself. Part of that, I think, is I don't want anything to do with you. But I do think that there was a reality of what was going on. So we come through this Jacob, manipulative, scheming, conniving, all of those things. But I want us to go to the end of his life and look at where he ends, because then we're going to go back and look at a scene in his life that I think changed everything Turn with me to Genesis chapter 47. Genesis 47, we'll put the slide back up of the family tree, okay? So we're talking about Isaac and Rebekah and their son Jacob and Jacob and Rachel and their son Joseph, okay? So that's where we are in this line, okay? Look with me, if you would, at chapter 47, starting in verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel, now that's Jacob. We're going to get to talk about that. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And when the time drew near that Israel, Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now, if I now, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Now, in that day, we now sign contracts, and you get a notary to sign it. In the day, what you would do is you grab their thigh, and it represented the vow or the covenant. And if you broke the covenant, the next generation would avenge that wrongdoing. So it was part of the way that they did a contract. So he's saying, I want you to make this sincere covenant with me. Promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt but let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. We'll talk more about that next week. But within that, the trust and the faith is this. God's not done. God will do what he says he's going to do. There's a promised land. This isn't it. And so when God opens the door for us to go home 
to the promised land, I want you to carry my body out of here with you. Like I said, we'll talk more about that next week. He answered, Joseph said, I will do as you have said. And Jacob, Israel said, swear to me. This is too important. Don't just give me an answer that you think I want to hear. I need you to swear to me that you carry my body out of here. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. How far has he gone? The manipulative, scheming, conniving person that did whatever it took to get what he wanted at the expense of his brother, at the expense of his mom, at the expense of his dad, now in an act of worship is fully trusting that God will do what he says he's going to do, that there's a promised land ahead, so don't leave me here, carry me out of here. And then he bows in worship. What in the world? How do you get from the first story we just looked at to this story? Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis 32 because we're about to see this incredible story of how God worked in his life. Genesis 32, and we're starting in verse 22. That same night, Jacob arose. He took his wives, his female servants, and his children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and he sent them across the stream and everything else he had, and Jacob was left alone. If you were here last week, we talked about the reality that there's just some walks in our faith that you can't walk with another person. It is you and the Lord, and the Lord has created the space for this moment to be alone with Jacob. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. We're not told at this time who this man is. But he, he wrestles with him throughout the night until the breaking of the day. It's a dark time, metaphorically and in, in the time of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob's still wanting blessing. Then he said, your name, excuse me, and he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. That's a different answer. He's honest. He's forthright this time. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God. That's who he was wrestling with. You've striven with God and with man and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. All of his life changed in a moment. All of it. He was a guy that had life by the tail. He controlled it. He controlled everything to get what he wanted. And God showed up and wrestled with him one night. Now, make no mistake, it, when we're told that the man did not prevail against Jacob... That's only God's grace, right? Because he could have wiped him out, but he didn't. He kept Jacob in the battle, and then at the end of it, he touched him in the hip. And he walked with the limp the rest of his days of his life. Now, I think that there's this remarkable truth, and we see this in Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Because Jacob now has to walk in that. And I think about one author that refers to this as the victorious limp. You know, last week I described worship 
kind of loosely when I said, you know, worship seems to happen when we recognize God for who He is, and we recognize who we are on this level, and we ascribe to Him His worth and value based on the difference between the two. And which is why I think we end up with Abraham going to worship when God provides a sacrifice. Now we've got Isaac handing this down to Jacob, and Jacob's at the end of his life, and he wrestled with God in such a way that he walked away with a better understanding of who God is, with a better understanding of who he is, and I think he worshiped. And he walked with the limp the rest of his life. So every day you see him walking with that limp, and somebody can say, hey, how's your leg feeling today? How's your hip today? And you know what we got to say? You know what? I'm upright. I'm moving. And the knowledge was this. I've wrestled with God, I know who He is, and I have forever been changed by it. I could never be the same. I will walk differently the rest of my life because I've seen God face to face. Now, let's be honest. The idea of that is full in Scripture. Paul, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn. Lord, please take the thorn away. I don't want it anymore. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I want you to have that thorn, Paul, because when you walk with that, when Jacob walked with that limb, when you walk with that thorn, I want a reminder that it's about me and my grace because I care for you. My grace is sufficient for you with the thorn. If I remove the thorn, you might forget that. You might not even learn that. Led Paul to say, I will boast all the more gladly my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Because we want to be adequate, right? We want to be adequate at such a level that we can say, hey, look what I've done. Look at my track record. Look at my resume of my discipleship. Man, God's really lucky to have me on his team. Let me tell you, I think that's why Peter, when he denied Christ three times, Peter, you're going to deny me. No, I will never deny you. You're going to deny me three times. I think Lloyd Ogilvie captures Peter's heartache when he writes this. Peter had built his whole relationship with Jesus Christ on his assumed capacity to be adequate. That's why he took the denial of the Lord so hard. His strength, loyalty, and faithfulness were self-generated assets of discipleship. The fallacy in Peter's mind was this. He believed that his relationship was dependent upon his own consistency in producing the qualities he thought had earned him the Lord's approval. That moment when you realize is that God's grace is sufficient in your inadequacies is the moment you truly trust the Lord, not what you bring to the table. That's where the gospel is. So go a step further. We can talk about the fact that the prodigal son, the story told from Jesus' mouth, when the prodigal son leaves and comes back broken, had every reason in the world, is practicing his speech. Father, forgive me. He doesn't even get the speech out. Rembrandt, in his incredible painting, The Return of the Prodigal, painted this painting. Maybe you've seen it before. Now, I want to focus in on something and give you a close-up. And as I read these words, as one person describes it, I want you to look at the picture. The old father has his returned son close to his chest with an unconditional love. Both of his hands, one strong and masculine, the other gentle and feminine, resting on his son's shoulders. He does not look at his son but feels his young, tired body and lets him rest in his embrace. His immense red cape is like the wings of a mother bird covering her fragile nestling. He seems to think only one thing. He is back home 
and I am so glad to have him with me again. There's something about a victorious limp that is so glorious as we're reminded about the goodness of God, his compassion, his heart, his restoring, the fact that his grace is sufficient for Jacob, it's sufficient for Peter, it's sufficient for Paul, it's sufficient for the prodigal. And catch this, really don't miss this. If you heard everything else and missed this, then you've missed the whole sermon. His grace is sufficient for you. We walk with that limp because he was forever changed. Come back to our our timeline here, I mean, our family tree here of where we are, and look at where we go. We've got Jacob at the end of his life, and now we're looking at Joseph, okay? Look down with me, if you would, at chapter 48, verse 15. And he blessed Joseph. Jacob blessed Joseph. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, even through my manipulation, scheming, conniving, all of that stuff. The God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who redeemed me from all evil blessed the boys. And in them let my name be carried on. In the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Because the blessing and the generations will continue because God said that it would. At the end, you know what his blessing is? Look back. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, my God, your God, and the God who will forever be. Bless the boys. The one who had shepherded me all the days of my life, even when I didn't even know he was shepherding me, even when I didn't realize he was shepherding me, even when I didn't want him to shepherd me, he was still at work to bring that about. Aren't we grateful that God is the hero of this story? It's not a story about, man, Jacob somehow deceived and won, and that carried this line forward. No, this line carried forward the promise of God and his plan because God's faithfulness is not dependent on people cooperating with him because he is omnipotent. He will work his plan in spite of our cooperation. And we can look up and say, that's crazy how he does it. And I think he would say, I'm omniscient, I'm omnipotent, I can do it. God is the hero of this story. In spite of sin and failure and family favoritism and dysfunctional family stuff, all of that is able to be used of God for his purposes, to carry forward the plan he always had. And so when we come here today, and the question is, what do we have to learn from it? Well, let me give you a couple of thoughts. When you find yourself anxious about your circumstances, resist the urge to try and control the situation by choosing to trust the Lord and his promises. Just lean into him. God, I, I know you said that this was going to be for me or this was good or you're going to provide. I, I don't see it today. So let me scheme, connive, manipulate to get my way because certainly you're going to bless that. That's not how he works. Lean into the Lord. Lord, I don't see how this is going to work, but you told me you're going to do this and I'm all in on you. So I trust you. Lean into him. Don't try to take matters into your own hand. First of all, you're not omniscient. You don't know what that means anyway. So lean into him and trust him to do what he said he's going to do. Secondly, when you find yourself in a wrestling match with God, allow yourself to walk away with a victorious limp. It's not a defeated limp. It's a victorious limp. You have seen God. And those of us who know the Lord, 
We all have that limp. Celebrate it. Let me tell you how God has worked in my life. And when you see other people with a limp, it's not cause to throw stones at them. Celebrate their limps too. Hey, tell me how God worked in your life. What was the battle for you? How did God do that? How did he come through? When you leaned into him, when you felt the tension to seize control and you didn't, what did God show you in that? And invite those stories and those narratives. Celebrate the victorious limp. It's that moment we meet God and walk away because out of his goodness and graciousness, when he could have wiped us out like he did in a wrestling match with Jacob, he could have, he didn't. He just touched his hip and said, I want you to walk with that the rest of your life, that you never forget the moment you wrestled with me. And I let you live and I let you walk so that you could tell other people about me. Thirdly, when you've seen God's faithfulness in your life, share those stories with those around you and create a spiritual legacy that will continue to perpetuate the greatness of our God. Be the one that says, you know what? Let me tell you about my God. My God here, here, now he's in my life and I'm praying his blessing on you. He's never once failed me. He shepherded me every day of my life and I'm praying that that will continue on in your life. Now know this, every legacy begins and ends with the cross and the gospel. Every legacy begins there. But when it comes to your family line, some of you are sitting here saying, man, it's great. I'm so grateful for my grandfather, my father, and me, and how that's just moved forward. And I recognize that there's some people in this room that said, uh, my grandfather, my father, my mom, my grandma, they didn't offer me much in the faith realm. Here's the good news. Legacies begin and end in wrestling matches with the Lord, and you can start your own legacy moving forward. Start with the cross and the gospel. And if you do not have generations ahead of you that have handed that off, you be the generation that starts it for your family line. And carry it forward by saying, let me tell you about my God who has never once failed me. Let me tell you about my God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Let me tell you about the God who shepherded me every day of my life and will continue to do so. And I'm praying his blessings upon you. That is a life worth living. You know where his life changed? He went from being a conniving, uh, all the other words I said, conniving and manipulative and all those other things that are bad words, right? It all changed when he wrestled with God and it changed the course of his life. I invite you to wrestle with God if you haven't yet. And those of us that have, tell others about the limp, that we may be blessed in hearing about God who is faithful. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stonelight Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.